We're reading today from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Lori. So, uh, obviously, we're taking a little break from the book of Mark for these next two weeks, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. So, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Luke chapter 19. That's where we're going to be, 28 through 44. As I mentioned, this is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of what... Uh, we call in the church world uh, Holy Week, and it's quite a busy and fast-moving week. Um, one of the interesting little things that you learn uh, in places like seminary is you find out that, uh, I, I think this is fascinating, I never even thought about this until a professor pointed it out, uh, more than 40% of the written material that we find in the four Gospels, that would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, more than 40% of it, almost half, um, is describing what happens the last week of Jesus' uh, ministry on earth and through his resurrection. So uh, of the three years that we tend to see in the Gospels, um, nearly half of it is about just that uh, last week. And so that last week starts with this, what, what's, what's known as the triumphal entry, I would say the so-called triumphal entry, uh, because then this week is also uh, uh, detailed by uh, the ensuing conflict and controversy that occurs, and Jesus does some more teaching in and around the temple uh, during this time. Uh, we have a, a, a lot about the Last Supper. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of John, we have five chapters that are dedicated to just that little time period, the Last Supper and his, his teaching uh, in John 14 through 16, and of course his great prayer in, in chapter 17, uh, and then the betrayal and his arrest, and then, and then the, this court trial, this goofy court trial uh, of his, and then his crucifixion, and we, we have Good Friday, and then, and then the despair that follows, and then, of course, on Sunday, he comes busting out of the tomb, the resurrection. The resurrection is the greatest reversal in history. It's the greatest rehearsal, the reversal in history. 
We love reversals. We love stories of reversals. It's, it's the reason why certain movies are so popular. We like movies like Cinderella Man and Seabiscuit and The Sting. I had to throw The Sting in there for those of you who were alive in the 70s and remember Paul Newman and, and uh, who's that other guy? Oh, Robert Redford. Yeah, he's even still alive. So um, We love that. Um, <clears throat> two years ago, one of the... Uh, we like... I can't get away from talking about sports when we're talking about reversals, of course. So two years ago, one of the great reversals ever in sports, uh, most of you don't realize it because you're not hockey fans like me, so three of you are going to appreciate this, but um, two years ago in game six of the Stanley Cup Finals, the Boston Bruins were on their way to winning that game. And then in the last minute and a half, within 17 seconds, the Chicago Blackhawks scored two goals and won the Stanley Cup. Yeah, just right over everybody's head. It was the greatest reversal in Stanley Cup history. And the only other people in this room that care about that happen to be Boston fans, which is probably why I brought it up. Okay, one that maybe more of you remember. How about the reversal in the Super Bowl? Possibly the most amazing Super Bowl ever played. And that goofy play, um, that's my word, goofy. I don't think Pete Carroll would use that word. But that goofy play there where Russell Wilson threw the interception and Butler, the defensive back, just knew exactly what was happening. Uh, possibly the greatest reversal in the history of the NFL. We all remember that, right? But we haven't thought about it in weeks. This is the greatest reversal in the history, this resurrection of Jesus. We proclaim it every single Sunday. Here we are 2,000 years ago, the bride of Christ. We're here for one reason, this resurrection. The crucifixion means a lot, but without the resurrection, without God's amen to the crucifixion, it really doesn't mean anything. It's the greatest reversal ever, and it's the only reversal that ever really meant anything. We're going on with our lives in the wake of these movies and these stories and, and these athletic events. But this really means something. The resurrection. We are the fruit of the resurrection more than 2,000 years ago. Today we're going to start, we're going to talk about how it all got started. Like I said, the so-called triumphant entry. Some churches celebrate it by having children come in with palm fronds. It's Palm Sunday. And, and I, I don't mean to sound flip. I, if I do, I apologize. But um, it is easy to reduce this Sunday, Palm Sunday, into that sort of symbolism. But if you read what the commentators have to say about this passage of Scripture that we're looking at and the other gospel accounts of, of the triumphal entry, what, what you know is that they understand this as a deeply complex event and a deeply complex text. There's a lot going on here. Um, and, and so we want to try and hear it afresh today. If, you, if you're new to church, this is new to you, and, and I'm excited for you. You get to hear this for the first time. Um, but many of you have been around church for a long time. This might be your 20th or 30th or 40th uh, Palm Sunday sermon. I still want you to try to hear this fresh today. Now, we're going to see later on as we continue our walk through Mark after Easter, we're going to see later on that there is a point in Jesus' three-year ministry on earth where he makes a decided and purposeful turn. I mean, literally, uh, in attitude, in emotion, and in body, he makes a purposeful turn from where he is to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to go down there for this last week of his life, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and knowing that he's going to be um, rejected there. 
And he's been proclaiming that to his disciples, but mostly to deaf ear, people who hear what he's going to do. He talks about it time and time again, that this is what's going to happen, but mostly this falls on deaf ears, or it falls on ears who want to hear a different message than he's necessarily um, proclaiming, because the message that he's proclaiming doesn't line up with their, with their perception of who the Messiah is supposed to be. And this is the beginning of that. This is the beginning. The great reversal also comes with a reversal of people's perception of who the Messiah is. And so the big idea today would be very simply this. When truth and our perception collide, when they clash, truth always wins. Truth always wins. Now there may be a time, there may be an interim there where it appears as though our perceptions are winning, but ultimately truth will always always win when truth clashes with our perceptions. So the text that Lori began with, it, it, it begins with these words, and when he, Jesus, had said these things. After Jesus had said these things, he headed toward Jerusalem. Well, let's give a little context here. What, what were these things that he, that he said? Well, they were disquieting things. They were challenging things. They were controversial, even some would say scandalous things. There's really three of them that, that we might talk about that were in the, the immediate context, the immediate wake of him turning toward Jerusalem. Number one, he had told his friends for a third time that he was going to go to Jerusalem to be beaten and executed, but that he would also rise on the third day. Now, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Understand that they had a different vision for the Messiah. The Messiah was not going to ever go to Jerusalem and be beaten and executed. Their, their vision was for glory. And, and, and they had hit what they thought was the rabbi jackpot in Jesus. They, they seriously thought that they had this unbelievable future. And he's saying, I'm, no, I'm going to be executed. No, it can't be. It can't be, Jesus. Peter even confronts him. In Mark chapter 8, what are you talking about? I'm not even, even going to let you talk like that anymore, Jesus. But then he also says, well, I'm going to rise again. What, what, is, what does that mean? They, they, they didn't even... Yes, there had been teaching about the resurrection, but, but they didn't understand it as the bodily resurrection of the Messiah necessarily. And so we know there are times in the Gospels when people who were receiving Jesus' teaching would just look at him and, and think, He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. So that's the first thing. The second thing was in Luke, he has this, right before this happens, he has this encounter with a guy named Zacchaeus, the short little tree-climbing tax collector. Okay? He has this encounter with him. It's an amazing encounter. Zacchaeus is a hated man. He's not just a tax collector, but he is the chief tax collector. He's a sinner of sinners. He's a sinner of sinners. And, and Jesus goes to his home. That is anathema that a rabbi, a clean person, would go to a, a sinner's home. Somebody especially like Zacchaeus who had turned on his people. And then not only does he go to his home, but while he's in, ho- in his home, Jesus declares Zacchaeus' salvation. Double anathema. This is blasphemy. This is ridiculous. This guy has to be killed. Not Zacchaeus. Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. And then the third thing that Jesus does is he tells the parable of the ten minas. This, this is similar to the parable of the talents. And it's 
This parable is used to help people understand some things that are going to challenge them. They challenge them then. They challenge us in some ways as well. For instance, uh, the parable explains that the kingdom of God is not going to be set up fully immediately. That when Jesus enters Jerusalem, <clears throat> his disciples are thinking, that's it. The kingdom of God has come. It's, it's done. This is the end of the story. The kingdom of God has come. There, that was their hope when they entered Jerusalem. But he's saying, no. We're ushering in the kingdom of God. I've come to proclaim the kingdom of God. I've come to start the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near. It's among you, but it is not here in its completion and it's not going to be completed yet. He also uses the parable to teach that good stewardship of the things that God gives us is really important. We talked back in uh, January about how when God created everything and then created human beings, that He created us as beneficiaries of of His goodness, of His blessing, and of His resources. We are beneficiaries. We don't own what God has blessed us with. And man, I know that's hard for some of us here. What do you mean I don't own? I worked hard for this. I sweated for this. I sacrificed. It's mine. And God ought to consider Himself blessed that I give Him 2 or 3%. It's all His. A friend of mine says this. He says, you should never contemplate how much of your money you're going to give to God, but rather you should contemplate how much of God's stuff you're going to keep. And that puts a new perspective on it. And so he tells this parable to help us understand that we are stewards of all that he's given us. And that includes not just our money, but our time and our relationships as well. He's also given those of us whom he's called as Christians, all of us, he's given us the stewardship of the gospel. God's kingdom message as well. And then the third thing that the parable teaches is that there's going to be judgment. A loving God is going to judge. If, if God is just, if He's filled with justice and righteousness and holiness, He's going to judge evil and sin. We can count on it. And these are troubling things. It was, it, it's troubling to us in many ways. It was troubling to them 2,000 years ago as well, the, the crucifixion, this encounter with Zacchaeus, the, the parable. And so it's after these things that Jesus finalizes his, ed, his entry into Jerusalem for this last week. So he begins his arrangements. He talks about Bethany and Bethphage. Those are little towns, little satellite towns outside of Jerusalem, anywhere from two to four, maybe five miles away from Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples, you need to go and, and get me a colt. A colt that's never been sat on. This word colt could mean um, a, a, a young horse or it could mean a donkey or a mule. It could mean uh, any of those things. And, and the idea of it not ever having been sat on is, is that um, it's a symbol for purity in the midst of a sacred task. And sitting on this colt or, or, or donkey or, or mule, sitting on it, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament book of Zechariah in chapter 9 that says the Messiah is going to sit on a colt or a, or, or a mule. He's going to humbly sit on it. It's, it's a king on a mule. I mean, the imagery is striking. Think about this. It's possible that Jesus' feet actually could touch the ground sitting on this animal. This is how small this animal would be. And the imagery here is purposeful. He's a king, and he's getting the version, our version of the red carpet treatment, the, the cloaks being thrown down in front of him is, is the red carpet treatment for him. And yet he's humble. He's on a humble animal. He's, he's not sitting on a regal Budweiser Clydesdale. 
He's, he's sitting on this little colt. Here's, here's, we got to stop and talk about this. This is really important. Here's what Jesus is, is trying to help us to understand. And again, it, it, it's counterintuitive. It confounds us. It's not the same message that culture gives us. And that is that humility is the path to the kingdom of God. Humility is the path to the kingdom of God. And that truth confounded those people. It just as it confounds us today. We've been taught in our culture clearly and excessively that pride is a virtue and humility is a vice. And Jesus and later on Paul in his writings in the New Testament teach us that no, 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 no. It's the other way around. Pride, pride is not only a sin, but it is the sin. It's the chief sin. And humility is the virtue. Uh, Tom mentioned this a couple weeks ago. In the book Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis does a wonderful job of explaining what pride is. Pride is a complete anti-God state of mind. It is the chief sin. It's everyone's besetting sin. It is the one sin through which every other sin you and I commit is strained through. It all starts with pride. Lust starts with pride. Adultery starts with pride. Stealing starts with pride. Greed starts with pride. Envy starts with pride. Every one of them starts with pride. It's about us and, and how we want to be superior and we want to control our own destinies and, and, and really be sitting on our own throne. And it was pride that caused Lucifer to fall and become Satan. It was pride that ultimately got Adam and Eve. And we're taught that this is a virtue in our culture and Jesus says no. Humility is the path to the kingdom of God. Understand, when the Roman leaders would enter Jerusalem or any other city, do you think they were riding on a colt or a mule or a donkey? They were riding on the very best horses that the Roman Empire had to offer. And so the contrast between Jesus and the Romans is stark and obvious. They were used to, in Jerusalem, the Romans riding in. And now here comes the king, supposedly, riding on this little animal. The contrast is stark and obvious. But here's what I want you to understand. This is really important. Jesus does not do this to insult the Romans. He's not out to get the Romans. He wants to save the Romans, just like He wants to save Israel. He loves the Romans. He's not out to insult the Romans, but rather He's out to teach that the real path to the kingdom is humility. That's for everybody. Roman, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. And it's a message that, of course, is mostly misunderstood and rejected, even as it is today. The idea that true power and lordship comes from humility and service. You know, it took great strength for Jesus to submit to the injustice that he submitted to in that trial and the, and the crucifixion. It took great, great strength for him to do that. More strength than you and I have. We would look at that path and we'd say, I'm not going down that path. But he's already done it for us. And now he calls us to be a part of it. That's why Paul says, I, I quoted this last week. I, 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 I love this passage because of the truth it, it, it brings. It's Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says, I want to know the power of the resurrection and we all want to know that. We do, right? Amen. Power of the resurrection. And then he says, and I want to share in Jesus' sufferings. And I want to become like him in his death. Because that's the path.
to the power of the resurrection. And he says, so that by any means possible, by any means possible, I would attain the resurrection. That's an understanding that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and I have to follow him and I have to be with him and not just for him. But we also have to understand that there's going to come a day when Jesus is going to come again and he's not going to be on a colt. He's not going to be on a mule. He's going to come with a sword and a scepter. He's going to come to complete the kingdom with a sword and a scepter. And so we hear this story. I've been around this story a little while and I know that one of the things that gets people kind of hung up a little bit is this idea that Jesus says, eh, go get me a colt and and if somebody says, hey, what are you doing taking my colt? Just say, oh, the Lord has need of it. You know, we get a little, what are you, what are you talking about? How, how does that work? I mean, come on, seriously. Wouldn't you just love to be able to do that today? Walk into a store, take it? In fact, here's what I propose. After second service, we're all going to go up to Camelback, where all those car dealerships are. We're all going to get into a car and drive away. And if anybody stops us, Jesus said I could. <laughs> Think that'll work? We look at that and go, how is this possible? But here's the thing. It wasn't very unusual in their cultural context. It's actually something known as angaria. And a public dignitary, such as a rabbi, actually had the right to go and borrow a, an animal if it was going to be for a regal purpose. And this was a regal purpose. This was the king entering Jerusalem. And then the disciples begin to cry out as he comes. They're crying out and they're announcing his coming. And and you heard Laurie read again. They they started quoting from the Psalms. They're quoting from the Old Testament. (laughs) And these Psalms are very specific in particular. Everybody knows what the disciples are claiming when they cry out these Psalms. They're saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the Son of God. He is the hub of God's plan. And so this entrance of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem, it it actually called for a decision, a thumbs up or a thumbs down decision, a yes or a no decision. No, eh, maybe It it was a yes or a no decision. It calls for a decision about whether or not they would follow Jesus. And as costly as it might be, the correct decision is to follow Jesus, is to place your life in in His and to give Him everything. Everything. And that very same decision is presented to anyone today who hears about this story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. The same decision is presented to each one of us today. Are we going to finally say, enough of me, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to be with the righteous one of God. I'm going to be with His Son, the Messiah. And it's going to be costly. It costs Jesus. It costs others who have followed Him. Those of us who have followed him, we, we know the costs. We understand. But it's the right decision. This call to Christ does not end with their generation, but it endures to every generation until he comes again. Now, all four of the Gospels record this account, but only Luke has verses 39 and 40, this little exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. Let me reread it for you. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, if if these guys were silent, the very stones 
would cry out. Creation wouldn't be able to help itself. Creation would begin to cry out. Uh, One commentator says that what Jesus is doing here is he is poetically talking trash to the Pharisees. He says, if my boys don't say anything, these rocks are going to stand up and start screaming. You can't stop it, Pharisees. You, You see, Pharisees, when perception and truth collide, truth always wins. See, this is a poetic way of saying something very, very stringent. And we struggle with this. We really do. We all have perceptions about reality. We all have uh, what we think is a worldview or an understanding about the way things should be. And we think that we're right. And there's a thing called false consensus effect that says that we not only think that we're right, but we think that everybody else pretty much sees it the way we do. And we're surprised that there might be an alternative way. We're shocked by that. It's why you can't watch any cable news network without uh, hearing. It doesn't matter whether it's a left cable news network or a right cable news network. You, You can't watch those without somebody saying everyone knows or everybody thinks and they're wrong. If that were true, we'd probably only have one cable news network, which would be a dream, of course, but, but it's not true. We, we all have different perceptions. And there's one thing, one anchor, one, one overarching truth that dominates all of those perceptions. Whoever's it might be, whatever it might be, And Jesus is telling the Pharisees that. And it's stringent and it's hard. When truth and our perceptions collide, truth will win. And he says, and oh, by the way, the consequences for those who decide to believe in their perceptions rather than the truth, those consequences are going to be dire. Dire. It's going to be tough. Let me ask you a question. And it's a rhetorical question. My assumption is the answer is yes for every one of us. Have you ever made a decision based on your perception of reality that turned out to be wrong and costly because your perception of reality was wrong and truth won, right? 30 years ago, there was a uh, savings and loan in Arizona, big savings and loan, big savings and loan called Western Savings. And they were in financial trouble. And my perception was, and by the way, You think that this is a brand new term. I think I coined it back in the early 80s. I looked at Western Savings and Loan and said, they're too big to fail. There's no way they're going to fail. There's no way they'll slip into bankruptcy. And all of this media talk about how they're going to fail and how often they're going to go bankrupt and all that, they're just blowing smoke. This is an opportunity. Their stock had dropped to $1.25. And so I said, there's no way they're going to fail. My perception is they're going to be all right. I bought $3,000 worth of Western Savings and Loan stock. Do you know how much that stock is worth today? (laughs) Zero. Well, I got a little tax deduction for it, so maybe 400 bucks, but zero, essentially. And, 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 and hear me, that, that three grand is nothing compared to you believing your perception about Jesus and it being wrong and you having to find out the hard way. It's going to cost you a lot more than three grand. On his way into town, though, Jesus gets a little sidetracked and he stops to lament over Jerusalem. See, Jesus knows that ultimately he's going to be rejected, that perception is going to win momentarily 
And the result is going to be judgment on Jerusalem, which does not make Jesus happy. You know, there's a lot of people running around thinking that, that, um, that God is happy and excited when he gets to judge and when his wrath comes, that he's like having a party when he does that. No, 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 no. God will judge because a just God will judge, but he's not happy about it. It makes him sad. Jesus is sad about what's going to happen to Jerusalem because he's being rejected. And not only is God sad, but he's really patient as well. God is a lot more patient with injustice than you and I are. If you and I got exactly what we deserve from God the very minute we deserved it, there would be no time between our injustice and his judgment. He's much more patient than we are, but we run around going, justice, justice, justice now. That's us doing our best God imitation, but it's not the way God operates. And again, think of of the contrast here. Jesus enters Jerusalem with much fanfare, but in his heart he knows the truth. He's going to be crucified, and Jerusalem will eventually be destroyed. Those who reject Jesus, unfortunately, have no idea of the wrath that they will eventually bring on themselves, yes, but also on other people. We need to be reminded of the collateral damage of our own sin. Can I get an amen, please? This idea that there are victimless crimes and my sin is only about me and I'm not hurting anybody else and how could I possibly not be allowed to do this because it'll never... Let me tell you something. Even sin that you do in quiet hiddenness affects who you are. It affects your character. It will eventually bleed into your relationships and it will have consequence on everybody else. You can't help it. There is collateral damage to our sin. Sometimes it's big and obvious like Jerusalem. Other times it's minor and subtle, but eventually it gets us. The great first century Jewish historian Josephus records that in 70 AD, Titus of Rome overran Jerusalem. The essence of what Jesus describes in those last few verses. And what's interesting is that the destruction of Jerusalem is not even the most important thing that Jesus is crying over. It's not even the most important thing because really the destruction of Jerusalem is the temporal understanding of what happens to the eternal person and their decision to reject Christ. That's what he's truly lamenting over. Jerusalem just represents the fact that if we reject Christ, there are eternal consequences. And eternal lasts a long time. In case you're wondering. This is really serious stuff. Very serious stuff. And I know judgment is not a pleasant subject. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. I got a lot of nerve bringing it up. But ultimately, the greatest judgment of all was had on the cross by Jesus. The one who didn't deserve judgment. The one who never sinned. He went up there and took our place. Took our judgment took our punishment. He became sin. He didn't sin. He became our sin. And that was judged. And the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus instead of us. And what we get is Jesus' righteousness. His just standing before His Father. That's what we get. That's another incredible reversal. That's what the reversal of the resurrection is all about. This is really good news. And it should redeem the fact that you had to hear about judgment this morning. It's great news. And we should really be excited about this. Just five days historically from this day, Jesus is going to go and do that. He takes our place on the cross. 
We get his righteousness. And so the reality of this judgment should, should not motivate us out of fear. Should never motivate us out of fear. But rather it should be motivated, we should be motivated out of love. This is a loving God who gave up the most important thing he could give up so that you and I could be reconciled to him. So many of us think that God owes us salvation because we're great. He doesn't save us because we're great. He saves us because he's great. Because he's great. And he does for us, through Jesus, what we could never do for ourselves. I want to finish by making two points. The first one has to do with the first 13 verses, verses 28 through 40. This is an interesting phenomenon. We need to see this. It appears as Jesus was entering Jerusalem that the people it appears as though they were praising Jesus. They weren't really praising Jesus. You know what they were praising? They were praising their perception of who Jesus was supposed to be. That's what they were praising. And that's why they so easily turned on him. In less than a week, they're deciding to crucify this guy because he did not live up to their perception. He did not live up to their agenda, their understanding. When Jesus turned out to be not what they expected, it didn't expose Jesus as a fraud, but it exposed their own selfishness. That's what it exposed. They wanted political power and military superiority and easy wealth. Jesus came to save them from their sin and to usher in the kingdom of God. We look at that through our flawed, corrupt, sinful perception and we say, my version of how Jesus and God are supposed to work this out is much better than that. We're the guy on the mat being lowered down through the roof because he can't walk, hoping that Jesus will do a miracle and make him walk and Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, thanks a lot, but that's really not what I was looking for. Political power, military superiority, and easy wealth. That's what I was looking for. You and I are the same way. Bless my agenda, Jesus. Make my life easy. Take care of my circumstances. Here you go, Jesus. I already have a kingdom set up. It's my kingdom. Come and serve my kingdom. You would be a welcome addition into my kingdom. Jesus, in fact, you can sit at my right hand. Go ahead. I don't have anybody else sitting there. You can sit there, Jesus. And when Jesus doesn't see things the way we think he should, he's rejected. He is anathema, just like 2,000 years ago. The human condition has not changed, and it never will. By the way, neither is God. It's the same. And God clearly defines in his word what our expectations should be, and that's what we are called to submit to. David said it three weeks ago so beautifully. I don't know how many times I've already repeated this. God calls us in His grace. He calls us. But then He confronts us where we are. And He says, I ca I'm calling you, I'm saving you, and I'm loving you, and I am taking the judgment, wrath, and punishment for you. But now you're not going to just stay right there. He calls us, confronts us, challenges us, and then he says, we're going to conform you to Jesus. That's what it says in Romans. And we need to submit to that instead of trying to change God's mind. 
Let's just change God's mind. Let's, let's be editors of God's Word rather than submit to God's Word. See, wisdom, true wisdom, is submitting our will to, to God's will. And His terms and conditions are the good news, the Gospel. We need to praise Jesus and not our perceptions. Here's the second point. It comes from the last four verses, verses 41 through 44. The city of Jerusalem was deceived about who Jesus was. The city of Jerusalem, the people in the city, they were deceived about who Jesus was. But it wasn't Jesus' it wasn't Jesus' fault. Everybody there wanted to blame Jesus. But it wasn't Jesus' fault. He had warned them. He had told them who he was. They deceived themselves. I want you to think about this. I brought this up last week. I'm going to hit it again. Who is your favorite person in the whole world to deceive? Who is your favorite person in the whole world to lie to? It's yourself. I love lying to myself because I can rationalize and justify anything when I do it. And I'm not even good at the lies. I'm just good at accepting the lies. We love to deceive ourselves. Paul says in Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You can't mock God. You will reap what you sow. The verb in there that we translate deceived literally means do not deceive yourself. It's self-deception. Don't be self-deceived. You can't mock God. Other people aren't deceiving you about God. You're deceiving yourself about God. And you can't mock Him. You will reap what you sow. There is going to come a day of harvest. And if you've been sowing to the flesh, Paul says, you will reap corruption. That, that word corruption could also be translated as complete and utter destruction. You will reap destruction, but if you sow to the Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, if you sow to Him, you will reap life. Don't deceive yourself. Jesus weeps over those of us who deceive ourselves about Him just as He wept over Jerusalem and its inhabitants 2,000 years ago. Don't be a Jerusalem. Don't deceive yourself. Let me pray. And uh, David's going to come and lead us in our time of response. God, we thank You again that You're willing to speak truth to us about humility, about perceptions, and about reality. And so God, I pray that You'd give us the, the wisdom and the power. Convert our hearts. Change our hearts so that we might submit our wills to your, Yours. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.